Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week, Apple agreed to settle a class action lawsuit. And in so doing, as part of that settlement, they agreed to let developers directly contact customers. So prior to this point, you couldn't uh, contact your customers uh, through information that you gathered from the app and let them know about alternative payment methods outside of iOS. Uh, now you can do that. You still can't let them know inside the app about alternative payment methods, but you can, for example, send them an email if you captured that email as part of the app and let them know that there are other ways that they could pay for that app or that subscription than just uh, through the app. Uh, this is a way of ultimately helping the developers avoid the 30% cut that Apple takes for all in-app purchases. So it is a uh, win for app developers, not the win that they wanted, of course, but it is a, a bit of a win. And there was a lot of other things announced as part of this settlement as well. Yeah, this is really Apple uh, just um, offering... You know, essentially, I, I would characterize it as as throwing a bone, you know, to uh, to the developers. A, a lot of companies that publish apps have found it very frustrating that uh, they have not they have been so disintermediated uh, from their own customers. You know, Apple Apple owns that relationship, of course. You know, while they were able to contact the customers, uh, they were not able to bring up. Terms of any other way to uh, to to, uh, to to pay for for services, and uh, this will this very small concession uh, from Apple will will allow them to do that. Uh, Apple took advantage of this opportunity to just say that they were going to continue doing some things that developers like, uh, including their small business program, which allows uh, app developers with revenue under a million dollars, which is the overwhelming majority of them, uh, to uh, pay a reduced uh, commission on, on apps, uh, and also promised uh, to continue to base app store listings on objective criteria such as downloads and ratings uh, as opposed to, uh, to, to advertising. Uh, and, you know, this is also pretty consistent with uh, the principles that were in place at the birth of the App Store, where Apple really wanted it to be primarily a place for organic uh, discovery. There was no advertising in the early days. Now there is some advertising, uh, but uh, by and large, a lot of the discovery takes place through uh, promotion that uh, is is done through uh, the, these objective criteria. So, um, you know, it, it, is, uh, it is, as you mentioned, Sean, uh, a win uh, for developers in some way. But uh, what does this really do for, for Apple in the longer term? Uh, I don't really see it having a dramatic impact on App Store revenue uh, negatively. Uh, and also, I don't really think it will would do much, if anything, to stem the growing tide of uh, of calls for regulation and far more dramatic measures that have been discussed 
such as uh, allowing sideloading or requiring uh, the uh, installation of third-party app stores. This, to me, is really all about control and transparency. And you you see it in some of the uh, concessions that Apple has agreed to. So, for example, they are now allowing developers to set a price point of, of you know, among 500 different options. Prior to this, it was under 100 options. Now, you know, maybe that's a small thing, but it shows the extent of Apple's control in this environment and the developer's lack of control. And prior to this, obviously, they couldn't even contact their customers without uh, without following very strict guidelines that Apple had set and, and to which they had no real influence over. So there's a, a big battle over control here. And then I think there's a, a big battle over transparency. Uh, Apple did say that they will add additional information to the app appeals process. This is a, a big pain point for developers. They'll submit updates and they'll have those updates rejected and the the rejection is not always clear so the app developer isn't sure what they have to do to get the uh the updated app approved and in the app store so there is uh, a lot of uh headache there for app developers apple said that they'll start adding additional information to better help those developers uh understand how the appeals process works but it, it it's clear that uh, you know these are marginal changes that that Apple still wants to control the app environment. They still want to have a, a heavy hand in regulating what goes on the app store, how it looks, how it's portrayed, how it's found, how it's uh, you know u- ultimately how the developers interact with the. Um, uh, with their customers. And it'll be really interesting to see what these emails start to look like now that we can get emails directly from uh, developers. Will they be encouraging us to subscribe? Will we see actually new premium offers come about that maybe companies have held back certain offerings because they just didn't make economic sense? And now if they can sell it to you directly, maybe it will make economic sense. I, I know I worked for an organization at one point was looking at selling research through the app, but the 30% cut just didn't make sense on research reports that were selling in, in the uh, you know thousands. And by the way, we couldn't price them in the thousands because Apple had that artificial threshold. I think everything had to be under $1,000. And so we couldn't price mm-hmm. uh, you know $2,000 report in the app. And then even if we could, we'd have to pay, you know, 600 bucks or whatever to the, to the app store. So it just didn't make sense. Maybe now that uh, app developers can contact their customers directly about offerings, maybe we'll see new offerings. And, and that probably is a win for both the developers and for consumers, but it still comes down to this massive battle of control between Apple and the end user. My big question is whether this is really going to move the needle. You know, we talked uh, a little bit earlier about the small businesses that comprise, I think the number is 99% uh, of all uh, of all apps. And uh, 
I, I think that says a lot about the nature of the app economy and how it's dominated by a relatively few household names. Uh, but, uh, you know, Apple is, uh, to, to a point actually, Sean, that you made, uh, or I should say uh, reinforced or reiterated last week, uh, you know, we talked about the power of defaults, right? And uh, this being Apple, consumers are still going to have to give their consent to be contacted by the developer. And of course, uh, and Apple probably didn't even need to put this in, uh, but uh, but they there needs to be a way to opt out. You know, that's pretty much covered by can spam laws and European privacy laws and things like that. But but just for good measure, uh, it's part of this uh, this as well. I'm just I'm trying to picture developers trying to argue against that provision. Oh no, there's no way we'll ever allow them to opt out. You know, of course, they're going to have to opt out. Uh, so uh, so you know, given that. Uh, you know, to, to, your, to your point about control, it really is a, a far cry. I mean, think about one of the, you know, sort of the heart of the, uh, the conflict. I know this was a class action suit, but, but think about the heart of the conflict between uh, Apple and Epic Games, right? Uh, that is really about putting a, a full-fledged second or optional app store uh, on the iPhone. It's about, uh, it, it's about accepting other kinds of payments in app, uh, which uh, not, not just telling people about other types of payments in app, but actually accepting other kinds of payments uh, in app, which of course is, uh, is still forbidden. Uh, and uh, an Epic, of course, has attracted uh, the support of, of a number of other large developers uh, through the uh, so-called Coalition for App Fairness. Uh, we saw uh, a, a number of other companies sort of take the uh, Epic Games route and offer their streaming game services through Safari uh, in a way or in, a, in an attempt to try to circumvent a lot of the restrictions of the App Store. Uh, so, uh, you know, perhaps for... Uh, a, a lot of the smaller developers, this makes their life a little easier, and that's certainly uh, a win for the developer community. But it really does little to nothing to address the major gripes of the largest third-party app developers that, uh, uh, that have taken issue with Apple's policies. I, I think it also creates some unnecessary bounds around what an app is. So Apple has done a good job of defining the App Store and early on defining it very strictly, very strongly. And as a result, we've had an explosion of apps. But I would argue they all fall within a, a very similar genre. And I, I can't help but wonder if we might see more robust and dynamic apps or apps of varying uh, you know, uses if the App Store had weaker guidelines, shall I say, about what an app is. Are, are you are you thinking of like a specific example there? Or, well, uh... I might go look for an app, say, uh, you know, I was recently at the gym and I was looking for a, an app that would allow me to track my workouts. Mm -hmm. And I found that they're all pretty similar. You know, there's they, they kind of all have a very similar style. They Many of them offer some type of in-app 
purchase that unlocks a set of premium features. Like all of this is designed around, I would argue, how the app structure, how the app mm. store is structured. And right, there's and, only so much flexibility to differentiate on business model. For yeah, example. exactly, and and you want this freemium type approach where you'll give away some basic features for free. You hope somebody downloads the app. That's your first hurdle as a developer. Once you get them to download the app, then you sell them some premium features. And sure, you know, in in the current environment, you sell it to them at a 30% premium, essentially, of what you want, because you know you have to give Apple their cut. Maybe now going forward, you price it lower because you you think you can capture more of that directly from the consumer. Or if not, even if you price it the same, you're at least capturing a bigger share of that. So maybe that opens up your ability to develop more. So I, I just wonder if we might see a greater richness in apps. I feel like we're at a point now where we've hit a plateau and it would be nice to see some new innovation come to the app store. We've seen a tremendous amount of innovation, certainly, you know, over the last decade. Uh, But it would be interesting to see what new ideas might come to the app store with a relaxation in some of the the rules and regulations that inhibit it. So you you hit on one is, you know, what does a... uh, does an app store within an app store start to look like? What does that open up? What type of opportunities might that open up? It, it's easy to see what it does for a company like Fortnite or Minecraft or some of these others where you're doing a lot of in-app purchases, but uh, in, in, in-game purchases, but maybe there's other opportunities as well. I, I can't help but think that we might see other workforce type issues or education issues that uh, that could be interesting to end users and to consumers and and ultimately to those organizations that are supporting those users so we're we're at a point where we're coming out of uh you know a time where we are all in quarantine we were all using devices we're moving into a hybrid environment are there apps that could support that hybrid environment, both from a workforce standpoint and from a, an education standpoint? Yeah, the, uh, the in-app purchase, I mean, that's a model that essentially the market uh, decided is one that should win, uh, you know, because it lowered the barrier to adoption. And, uh, you know, I remember, Sean, when I was looking at uh, App Store economics a little more closely a, a couple of years ago, Discovery is a huge challenge uh, for for app developers. Uh, also, a big challenge uh, for skill Alexa skill developers. Something we've talked about uh, on the show before, and something Amazon brought up in its uh, Alexa Live uh, developer conference a few uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, but that's something that's still in the early days, you know, as opposed to the App Store, uh, which uh, of course has been around for more than a decade. Uh, when I first heard that there had been these major, or rather these changes uh, coming to the App Store, you know, part of me thought about so many of the changes that that we've seen since the launch of the App Store. Uh, in those early days, there was no in-app purchase mechanism. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, Sean, to build on that point about uh, business model diversification, I think another reason that developers have moved, embraced that model is, is also because particularly on iOS, it's more difficult to sustain uh, an advertising 
driven model, right? So, uh, so this is a way to get the app into people's hands and try to uh, naturally or organically uh, monetize the cu customers who are the heaviest uh, users, the ones who find the most value in it. Uh, the other point I wanted to make uh, about, you know, when you brought up the question, what is an app, uh, is the tremendous changes we've seen in the web uh, since the early days of the iPhone, right? Because when the App Store was launched, it was in response to this idea that there was functionality that you could just not achieve on the web. And today, you look at even what's possible on the mobile web, and it's incredible, you know, how much uh, app-like functionality uh, has been uh, developed uh, and, and implemented and, and how we're seeing Google and Microsoft offer support for these uh, progressive web apps that have um, kind of the look and feel and functionality of native apps. So uh, the line uh, does continue to blur. Uh, of course, there are inherent advantages in, in native code, particularly in games, uh, which are uh, comprise you know, the largest mobile app category by far and, and uh, the highest revenue grossing category uh, overall. Uh, but that's really, you know, I'm, I'm sure there have been many discussions uh, within Apple, within the Safari team, uh, as they have increasingly committed to bringing mobile Safari up to the functional level of desktop Safari. You know, where are we going to draw the line? Are are what, what level of functionality are we going to enable in the browser to the point where it becomes more viable for many uh, developers to, to bypass uh, the App Store? Well, and what helped, obviously, is connectivity speeds improved and, and connectivity maps improved. So you're now really online much more heavily than you were say 10 years ago with when you went underground and you got on the subway in New York, you just lost connection. Right. And, 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 now, and now we're starting a new chapter with 5g. Exactly. Right? Which, so, you know, the full impact of which has not yet really hit mobile yet. Yeah. And so you're, you're going to be connected. So I think that browser to your point, Ross is actually a much more viable channel now than it once was and will be over the next decade. And Apple surely must recognize that and, uh, you know, is trying to manage a transition period between an app store and, you know, and, and what comes beyond. Uh, the fact that, you know, they cut the rates for developers making less than a million dollars, which you pointed out is 99% of, of developers, highlights that, it's not their end game anymore to really monetize the, every last dollar of the app store. And, and this is a further uh, proof of that. Yes, it's not all of the, the change and they're not making it as easy as possible. Uh, you know, they're not allowing developers to charge them directly inside of the app, which would obviously make it much easier for developers. But it, I feel like it's a sign that, Apple is moving away from monetizing the App Store as as one of their core businesses, and they're really, uh, you know, again continuing to focus on services. We saw this week that they offered uh, to take a fifteen percent cut as opposed to a thirty percent cut 
for publishers in-app purchases and subscriptions if they joined Apple News and they uh, you know they had to uh, do a number of things, including commit committing to have a robust and dynamic and and complete Apple News page or or whatever. But um, I think that uh, it shows that they really want to build out their services and they see those services as a key opportunity for them moving forward as they continue to try to to make the hardware uh, as desirable as possible for developers. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Sean. And uh, uh, not only has the world changed a lot since uh, 2008, but Apple has changed a lot uh, since 2008 and is no longer this company uh, that was, you know, particularly back then, uh, let's call it a one and a half product company, right? It had the Mac <clears throat> and it had the iPod, which was, you know, a tremendous success, uh, but something that was, you know, getting getting on in its life cycle, uh, and uh, ultimately, of course, would be largely replaced uh, by uh, by the iPhone. Well, essentially, completely replaced by the iPhone. Uh, so, uh, I think you know, there a lot of their next chapter, and this question of, you know, how do you differentiate the App Store experience from the web experience, uh, or maybe not, maybe not even the App Store, uh, but but kind of the the native functionality experience from from the web experience uh, is uh, is going to take place with with augmented reality. Uh, it's something that they've been talking up, you know, for years and years. And uh, while Sean, you know, you're certainly right that it's longer term. They're on the services trajectory uh, in terms of their, you know, traditional MO, which has been launch device and, you know, create an ecosystem around that device. Uh, that This is really the one that, that folks have been waiting for. And uh, we haven't really heard much in terms of updated rumors uh, since I think the last one we heard was about how Apple was planning to release a high-end headset for professionals at some point. But but in any case, uh, we continue to see more horizontal applications. Uh, This week, in fact, I uh, got a demo of um, some new mixed reality glasses that Lenovo uh, recently launched, the Think Reality A3 uh, glasses. Uh, These are very lightweight glasses. No one would mistake them for a set of uh, Wayfarers, but you know they're they're also a far cry from the Oculus Quest or or Hololens, uh, and uh, they plug into a PC. You know you need a pretty pretty decent PC, uh, and you can have multiple monitors. You know without having to have physical uh, monitors around you. Uh, that clearly has mobility advantages. It has you could argue security advantages. Uh, particularly in this hybrid world so that you know that that you bring up, so uh, it's a good example of this next frontier of uh, of technology uh, moving moving beyond what we can do uh, on on the web at least today. And that fits in with my view of where the world's going when we think about the future of work. If we start to have more remote workers, these are remote workers that are going to want to take advantage of that remoteness, meaning they're going to want to work 
at sometimes in different places in different environments are going to want to be able to mix in travel so maybe they'll set up shop in one place and and work there for a month or several months or a year even and then move on to the next place they want to have a uh a, a light carry if you will and that doesn't mean you're hauling around multiple monitors and having multiple setups so a vr setup like the one you just described could fit that nomad lifestyle quite well in a, in a hybrid work environment where they can work on the road, but they want to have all of the productivity capabilities of, of, a, of an established and fixed office space. So it'd be interesting to see if that, uh, you know, that catches on. And, and likewise, I think there's lots of interesting opportunities in the uh, education space for, for that type of technology as well. To your point, we haven't seen Apple really talk a lot about that. We have seen Facebook continue to try to iterate Absolutely. around that. And we saw some announcements last week that we, we discussed in last week's episode. So they're really thinking about what that in, in type of environment looks like and how to build that out. And we haven't seen uh, Apple yet. And I think this is one of Apple's struggles is they... They can think about what the environment looks like. They can think about the hardware, but sometimes they're delayed in bringing all of those pieces together. I think we see that in, in uh, you know, what what I'll call the assistant world with Siri. They've done a good job of building that into the mobile phone, but as they tried to extend it to the speaker and to the home environment, they've had less success than, than say, an Amazon, which has come in with a uh, arguably lower quality product, but at a much lower price, and then they've been able to to get extended coverage in in the rooms, and Apple has struggled there. So it will be interesting to see. The, the, uh, the content side of Apple loves those low-priced Amazon devices, though. Right. So, right. yeah, yeah. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they try to do with the VR. I think that's their, their struggle is they want a quality hardware experience, with, which often comes with a, a higher price point. And they also need to build out the rest of that, that ecosystem, which inevitably for Apple's future involves some type of recurring service because if it doesn't then they worry about it starting to look like just a display and Apple doesn't want to be in the the commodity business so uh, I think that's been their struggle with the App Store is they tried to use the App Store to differentiate the iPhone from other lower priced smartphones and and uh as, as you talked about, as we move to the web, that's going to be increasingly difficult for them to do. I think it'll also be interesting to see whenever this thing hits the market uh, to tie things back to the App Store a bit, you know, whether Apple will uh, move forward the policy of <clears throat> kind of buy it once, run it anywhere, uh, except for the Mac, right? The Mac, I think, uh, primarily for legacy reasons, has its own app store, right? It's a more open platform. But all of their other platforms, iPhone, iPad, the watch, the TV, uh, all have a shared, uh, you know, stronger, stronger shared lineage, tech, technological lineage, uh, and platform uh, tie. So when, uh, you know, when this VR headset does finally emerge, I think it's reasonable to assume that it would support 2D content, you know, on some level. Uh, people are going to watch 
Netflix or Apple TV Plus or, or whatever on it. Uh, but of course, the the real potential is in this augmented, uh, overlaid content, perhaps VR content as well. In which case, uh, you know, we we can be assured that uh, it it will certainly have uh, it, its own its own app store. So so uh, the precedents, you know, that may be another reason that they are moving so cautiously now, because you know we look at all the money that the app store has generated, and you have to wonder, you know, thirteen. 13 years after the the launch of the app store hasn't, you know, hasn't it kind of, you know, you, you could certainly call it a mature technology, right? <clears throat> uh, but the, the precedent that, uh, that Apple establishes with it could carry forward uh, into uh, a next generation of technology. Uh, I think that's a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>